Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Cody McAuliffe podcast. In this podcast, we share all things on consciousness, mindset, psychology, anything to do with tapping into people's latent superhuman potential. Personally, I believe that every single person has this latent skill, this latent ability within them, which is crying to come out, which is crying to be expressed in the world. And this podcast has been created so that we can actually create that occurring for as many as people as possible. If you're not already, please join the Human Potential Movement Facebook group where we talk about all things uh, human potential and you'll get first access to this podcast. So let's get into the episode. Hey guys, thanks for joining us for today's episode. Today's guest is Andrew Pierce. Andrew Pierce has been professionally coaching and mentoring in the stress and anxiety space since 2014, so he has a wealth of experience. In this episode, we dive deep into the how-to of transformation. It was absolutely phenomenal. We went through uh, how to actually feel our emotions, how to feel to heal. We went through the death of the ego, all the unconscious programming and things that were going up for us, the distinction between blame and responsibility, um, the framing around mental illness and why that creates a disempowering context for people and much, much more. I'm super excited to be able to get into this episode with Andrew because I know you're going to get absolutely immense value from it just like I did. So let's get into the episode. Awesome. So today's guest is Andrew Pierce. Thanks for joining us, Andrew. Thank you, man. Thank you for having me here. Pleasure. Cool. So one of the things that you seem to want to share on a little bit more is concepts like uh, anxiety and shadow work. So what, what, what are you seeing in terms of people and anxiety coming up for them in this day and age? So what kind of gets asked a bit is like, is anxiety and stress a bit more prominent these days? And it very well may be, um, but it's, it could be that it's just more talked about um, in, in society, in the world today. And... What I, what I see out there, which I, I don't love, I, don't, I mean, I don't really get down with the word mental illness. Um, I just think it's damaging. You know, first off, to say to someone, you're mentally ill. I, I just think it can result in a lot of personal shame for that person and for that experience. You know, you, you break an arm. I don't know if people are feeling shame about breaking an arm. You, you fell off the, the, the jungle gym or something like that. But... Um, yeah, with that, that label of being diagnosed uh, as mentally ill, I, I just think it can have damaging effects. As I mentioned, there's the shame about it, but then it can also be used as a bit of a crutch um, where a bit of a safety, an excuse, a justification or something to blame, which are the three, the three main things of what's known as like below the line thinking, which is living at that effect of life, that everything's happening to you and you're the way you are because of life and society and happenings and blah, 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 you're at effect. And that allows you to blame your parents for the way you are, excuse your behaviours because of your mental illness and justify why you're not going after what you want or producing the results that you want because, oh, no, here, forgot to tell you, I'm mentally ill. It's like, oh, shit, sorry, you should have said that earlier. I would have backed right off. Um, so, so that's something that I do see uh, out there a bit is, and that's why I don't really jam with that label or, or that those two words, mental illness. Um, I just don't think it's necessary and I, think it, I don't think it has positive effects, really. I don't think it's necessary for treatment uh, and for change. 
and <clears throat> that it can yeah, have those negative effects where it's my mental illness that holds me back. It's not me. It's not my responsibility. It's my mental illness that I, that I can blame. So that's one thing that's, that I think is kind of prominent in today's world, actually. Mm. How would we create an empowering context for that then? I think the way to go about it is first off that kind of awareness that I've just shared. Um, you know, I also talk about the dangers of saying my anxiety is that if it's my anxiety and it's my mental illness and I'm mentally ill, what happens is this becomes a part of our identity, who we see ourselves to be, and we tend to defend our identities. Back in 2017, I was running a business called Anxiety Free Living. I had a, a big uh, Facebook group. And there was a girl that made a comment and I said, yeah, can I share some stuff and shared some stuff back? And I'll add the tone of voice. Obviously, it's just coming through text, so I didn't really know. But it was like, um, are you going to tell me how my anxiety works? I'm like, no, I'm just actually sharing with you the structures and codes of human behavior and fear in general. And there was this defensiveness over it because there was an attachment to it because with all problems in life, there's many benefits and payoffs. You know, if someone challenges my anxiety, which is aligned with your identity, the ego sees it as a challenge of identity and immediately steps into a defensive place where we end up defending the problem that we consciously say that we don't want. So what I share with people, what I recommend is to create a more empowering context or frame or understanding around this is everything I've shared so far and to use the language of the anxiety that I experience. Uh, the stress that I experience rather than my anxiety or my stress or my mental illness. Mm. I love that. Creating separation between uh, like any feeling or emotion or, or sensation or experience and the identity becomes this empowering thing for people to be able to start to create in their life. What, um, what advice would you give to people then to start that process? What I would share with people is uh, personal responsibility. I think like, you know, awareness precedes change. It's pretty hard to change something that we're not aware of. And then when we are aware of something is to take full responsibility for it. You know, I've had my experiences of anxiety and if I wasn't responsible for it and it wasn't my responsibility to change, then how am I going to go about doing that? If we break down the word responsible, we could say that it's response able, which means that we are able to respond to the experience, to our results in life, to our environment. But in, I was going to say in the personal development world, but yes, in that, but in life, just in life, I think personal responsibility is the way to go. 100% personal responsibility, which can be full on, which can be daunting. You know, sometimes you might just go bit by bit or area by area within your life, within your thinking and within your emotions. But that is the advice that I would give. That's step number one to be like, you know, you might, you might be out somewhere and you're calm and relaxed and then someone says something to you and then anxiety fires up and it triggers. So it appears as if Joseph made you anxious, but that's just not true. The way in which you reacted or responded to what Joseph said is what made you anxious. As we think first, then we feel. Mind is the master, body is the servant. Everything starts within the mind. So if you blame Joseph for the reason that you're, ang you're anxious, then you're probably angry at Joseph as well. You might feel disempowered around him. 
You might start to live your life to try and avoid him or you might go and try and change him rather than taking responsibility yourself. So I think like awareness precedes change. Once you're aware of something, that, that first step is responsibility for sure. Mm. Cool. So how do we define the, the difference between blame and responsibility then? Well, if I'm blaming someone, I am saying that the cause or the source of my experience is outside of myself. Mm. Um, and what happens in that is if, if I say that you, Cody, you're the reason that I'm anxious, I've just given you my power. And then I feel powerless. Then I complain about feeling powerless, but I've given it away. So when we're blaming it, uh, it is, yeah, it is putting so, or saying that the source or the cause of, of our results of our world of our internal experience is outside of ourselves, which naturally just creates a victim mentality. Uh, you know, some people rock a heavy victim story. I, I've taken a lot of responsibility in my life. There's still going to be plenty of ways in which I rock, rock a bit of a victim story. I think there's varying degrees of intensity. Um, <clears throat> that taking responsibility is saying, I am the cause. I am the creator. Yes, Cody or Joseph said that thing to me, but I made that mean that I wasn't enough or I took it a particular way and how I responded to the external events is what created my internal experience. Thus, I am the cause. I am the creator. Mm, love that. It's, it's looking at the projector rather than trying to change a projection consistently because we it's very easy to fall into that trap of instantly trying to change everything externally when it's ultimately the meaning that we made out of it then. So how, how, do, we, how do we start to then alter when we notice that we're getting into a victim mindset? How do we start to alter the meaning of that and our frame of reference around it? Yeah, great question. So first thing is always like awareness and education and understanding is that, you know, an event in and of itself is inherently meaningless and that we are meaning-making machines in a meaningless world. So it's not the event itself that makes one anxious. It's the meanings that we apply to the event that will make us anxious. I could walk into a party, I could see someone looking at me and I could make it mean that they're judging me negatively that's going to create a particular experience for me. Uh, probably one of <clears throat> anxiety and shyness and, and whatnot. Uh, I could walk into a party and say someone's looking at me and I could make it mean that they're excited to see me. That's going to create a different experience, maybe one of excitement, maybe one of love and gratitude. So the way to change anything, I believe, <clears throat> is to first understand why we are choosing one way or the other in the first place. So I like to look at how and why. How am I making myself anxious in this moment? I'm thinking that Cody's judging me negatively. I don't have any proof of it. I'm assuming uh, I'm making the rest up. I'm filling in so many gaps. Um, so that's how I'm doing it. And then understanding why. Because everything that we do in life is a choice. Every choice we make works for us on some level. Otherwise, we simply would not be doing it. There's a, there's a secondary gain or a benefit to everything. And when we understand why we're doing what we're doing, it begins to, it begins to loosen the hold that we have. Things be just begin to, to shift and we'll take those steps back. You know, when it's my anxiety and I'm an anxious person, 
oh, actually, that's just an identity. That's one step back. Uh, how am I creating that identity? With these beliefs. Why am I choosing those beliefs? This understanding. It just allows us to take those steps back and be like, oh, that's not even who I am. It is something that I'm creating. So, you know, definitely understanding the how and, and just the why is so insightful to be like, ah, oh, no shit, that's why I've been running that story or running that pattern all along. Mm. So when we're looking at those secondary gains or those payoffs, how do we start to determine that? Because it, it, it takes takes a lot of self-awareness to be aware of that and very few people, number one, are willing to, to do that kind of questioning and that kind of depth of work. Um, and most people just have no idea about it. Yes. Yeah. So like how, how, do, we, how do we start that process? Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, so there are patterns and codes of human behavior that are consistent throughout everything. They're, they're universal. Um, if codes were like subject or situation dependent, our jobs would be tough, Cody. Like we're trying to <laughs> coach people through, oh, okay, that's the situation. This is the situation. Our jobs would be tough. What allows us to do what we do, as I'm sure you know, and just obviously I'm also sharing for the listeners, is that when someone's sharing something with me or they're, and they're telling me the story, I'm seeing the codes. I'm seeing the patterns. I'm seeing the universal thinking that's going on behind the scenes. And I was actually chatting with a friend the other day and, sh and was sharing that, you know, as a coach, I'm not just giving you my opinion on something. I'm relaying information to you that you're currently not able to see, but that I'm able to see because I have the education. Therefore, I see it because of the filters that I now have. I actually receive that because I'm like, oh, you've said this, but I can see what you're doing here is really about the need for significance. It's like, ah, okay, that makes a lot of sense. So for the call today, I think just four things that are all one code is Tony Robbins' six core needs. Mm. But we're only going to look at the first four. The first four are the needs of the personality, and, and we are always meeting those needs. And our problems in life are designed for us to meet those needs. It just comes at the cost of pain and suffering because it's associated with a problem. So those needs are certainty, uncertainty, significance, and connection. These are just the needs of the personality in the human being. Flavors of certainty are security, comfort, control, predictability, familiarity. Flavors of uncertainty is variety, uh, excitement, adventure, challenge, and drama. Significance is importance, standing out, knowing that you matter, uh, worthiness. And then connection is togetherness, support, love, attention, uh, and belonging. So every problem that we create in our life, because problems are self-created, is designed to meet these needs and does meet all of these needs. The question is just, do you meet this need in a positive, sustainable manner, meaning that you can just you can just do that for the rest of your life and you're all good? Or does it come at the cost of pain and that pain's eventually going to build up to a point where you're in a position where you're like, I can actually no longer run this strategy. So the way to create that kind of awareness is if anyone's listening, go back over this, write down certainty, uncertainty, significance and connection, write down all the different flavors and variations of each need that I've shared. And then also write down the question, why am I choosing this? What does it give me? And then just reference those first four needs and 
that's just not a great place to start. That's an incredible place to start. If you just go through that, uh, it will illuminate so much of your behavior and your decision-making. Mm, definitely. Starting with those, those human needs is an essential starting point to create that different level of awareness because most people, they don't question why they do anything. They just notice that they're actually doing it. So creating that foundational underlying driver and that need being fulfilled instantly creates a, a new context for how they can actually start to show up in the world. So that's amazing. Thank you. hundred percent, man. It's like when people don't question, they're just, yeah, they're just stuck on trying to change on the level of behavior. And that's why so many people suck at creating change because mm. the behavior is a result of the thinking, as you've just said. Um, and it's like, if you're trying to uh, change at the level of behavior, you're actually just fighting against yourself. You're in a conflict and resistance with yourself. You're creating more stress and inner turmoil life will feel like you're barrowing shit up a hill and um yeah you want to go yeah, behind the behavior as you said to the thinking and then naturally the behavior is going to change itself mm, definitely one of the things that i consistently talk about with people is we always just answer the questions but we don't really question our answers very much oh i like that and when we instantly start to go into the questioning and the inquiry of why we actually came to that conclusion or that answer or that way of being, then we start to actually create a completely different level of awareness in, in how we actually are in the world. So yeah, uh, I find yeah. that really helps. Um, in, in terms of stress in the world, like anxiety and stress, are they synonymous? Is stress a good thing? Is stress a bad thing? What, what, what's your take on that? Yeah, totally. Look, I, I take it from two perspectives. First perspective is that um, no suffering in my no suffering in my mind is good. Stress is a fear-based experience, and it's it's a form of suffering. So there's that. Whenever I'm doing my thing, <coughs> well, which is always, which is just living, um, <coughs> I'm looking through those two lenses. Spiritual truth. This is suffering so it's not good it's like sometimes people ask is there such thing as a healthy attachment well no there's no such thing as a healthy attachment but you can live very healthily in your life with attachments so that's my same kind of answer here is um is stress good from a spiritual truth kind of perspective it's suffering so it's it's not good but are there benefits of stress um you know, can it alert you? Can it help you to get going, produce results in the short term? Is it, is it uh, you know, somewhat natural? Sure. Um, but prolonged stress and anxiety, nah, that's not good. That's going to really cause you some grief and cause you some problems. So they're the two lenses and perspectives that I look, uh, that I look through to, to answer that question. Mm -hmm. And can you dive deeper into what attachments are then? Yeah, great love talking about attachments so buddha says that the that attachments are the root of all suffering and you know when we attach to something we can attach to anything we can attach to an identity of who we think we are we can attach to the past and be super nostalgic we can attach to items of clothing uh you know i used to have a lip ring that i was attached to because i was attached to the identity that i had when I had the lip ring, but I was really attached to who I thought I was and how I felt about myself when I had it. Um, we can attach to future results that we don't even have just yet. And what's happening with attachments is because the ego has a deep belief that it is not enough and it comes from lack and scarcity, 
it's just crawling, it's scrounging out in this world, trying to build up its sense of self, and it does so through attachment. Now, the intention behind attachment is prevention of loss. The irony is that whenever we attach to something, we immediately become fearful of losing it. And then when we're fearful of losing something, we act in a fear-based way. If I'm fearful of losing a sales call that I don't even, that I'm not even on just yet, I don't have the sale, but I'm fearful of losing that sales call, I'm coming from fear, I'm going to be needy and, and desperate, or I'm going to be pushy and aggressive. And those behaviors are going to push away the sale. Same as if I'm very heavily uh, attached in a relationship. I'll be needy and desperate, which is just gross and not attractive if, if I'd be real, um, or controlling and aggressive. And it's actually going to have a damaging effect on the attachment that I'm trying to prevent the loss of. So with attachments, it's incredibly interesting to, to take that perspective. And also, like, let's say you've got your, your favorite jacket or your favorite dress or whatever, and you just feel sexy. You feel fucking sexy. You feel good. You feel confident. You just, you're a different person when you got that thing on, you know, girls are looking at you, guys are looking at you. You're just like, I'm good, man. I'm doing my thing. You, you, you assume a new identity. You feel incredible. You take all of that on and then you lose that dress or that jacket. It's, it's an, it's a death to the ego. It's legitimately a death to the ego. It feels like a death. There's such sadness that it's just like, I don't, I've lost that feeling. I've lost that internal experience. That identity of who I was when I'm in that dress or when I'm wearing that jacket is gone. Um, so, yeah, there's attachments here, there, and everywhere. And it's incredibly interesting to, to dive into and explore them, I think. Mm. When we think about like that death of the ego, is that why as people get older, they tend to avoid evolving or avoid going into the work on, on people who are just like normal kind of general population, people who aren't in the personal development space. They're not willing to go through that discomfort of the death of the ego of the person they believe themselves to be. So they don't actually go into that work and then they end up just playing the same loops over and over again and have the exact same results for the rest of their life. And then it's just groundhog day for them. Is that? Yeah, totally, man. I would, I would think that's the case. Like let's say they're 50, 60, that's some ingrained shit by the time you're 50 and 60, you know, by the time we're 35, 95% of our uh, programming is unconscious. And if you're 50, 60 years old and a bit stubborn and defiant and there's some pain there, but it's not enough to, to get your ass into gear, then um, <coughs> yeah, there'll be a lot of resistance to, to doing the work and creating that change because it's so unfamiliar, you know, talking about the, the first four needs of the personality, certainty, comfort, control, familiarity, safety, security. Like I think we compromise the other needs for that one. The, the, the purpose of the mind and the ego, it's designed for survival. Some people live their life in their house. They miss out on the variety and the adventure of life. They miss out on the significance of <clears throat> being someone in the world standing out being an individual they they miss out on the support the connection the belonging the togetherness the tribe but they feel safe in their home they're surviving at least so i think by the time yeah you're 50 60 beyond that even earlier so much is so heavily ingrained that we will sit in familiar pain if i'm in pain and it's a nine out of ten and it's familiar but the thought of changing is a 10 out of 10, 
I'm not going to change. Why would I move into more pain? You just simply wouldn't. It doesn't make sense. The ego is not going to do it. The mind's not going to do it. So I think that's kind of how it rolls in those later years of life is that it's just like, I've been this way for so long. Who am I if I'm not this way? I've always been the angry bastard or I've always been the people pleaser. Um, you know, that uh, it's just a bit harder. That's what's incredibly valuable to get into this younger age. You know, sometimes you work with someone who's 19, you're like, good on you. That's, that's great. So, uh, yeah, man, I'd agree with, uh, with your point for sure. Hmm. When we look at like all of that unconscious programming, how much of that is based on experiences that we've gone through and how much of that is dogma or societal based beliefs that we buy into, do you think? <clears throat> oh, that's a tough question to kind of, to kind of put a percentage to that. I think it's, I, yeah, I'll struggle to answer that, bro. I think it's certainly both of them. Um, how much is one, how much is the other? Um, you know, I think we certainly have an, ex yeah, an experience based on the meaning that we apply or based on the filter that we, uh, that we see things through as we've kind of discussed. Um, so maybe it starts more so or the heavier influence is with the dogma uh, from the ages of zero to seven or the culture or what mum and dad says life is, which is crazy to think about it. You know what I mean? Like mum and dad say that this is life. This is life. You know, and you just don't, you don't bat an eyelid. You don't question it. You're just like, my dad's the strongest man in the world and he says that this is what life's about and so that's how it is. Yeah. Um, yeah, if anything, I would kind of think maybe it's like the cultural stuff and the dogma comes first and then that has a, I think they're both playing at the same time. Mm. But in the early days, that has a stronger influence and then a lot of our experiences just reaffirm and confirm what happened in those early years. Mm. Yeah, interesting. Definitely plays out based on the different levels of development that we go through as well as we start to develop our identity, our identity outside of our family and our identity as what we do for a living as well. So I think that definitely plays into it. And I like the point of how it, it it's brought all through all of those experiences and then it's just laid on top of that, like layer by layer as it starts to instantly bring that in even more. Um, yeah. What, what are some of the, the, common, the common themes of dogma or cultural conditioning that you see with the people you work with? Once, um, you know, well, I, I grew up in Australia, Australian, Western society. Um, tall poppy syndrome is certainly one, you know, which I think is it's in interesting how different it is from the States. Yeah. Um, I was hanging out with a client here in Bali just the other day and her partner grew up in the Cook Islands and I was like, what is it like there? You know, and he's like, look, man, there's opportunity, but there's not this prestige or this drive around going after the opportunity and he's like most people are pretty happy and you just do your thing you know rather than having 10 coconuts of your own you'd rather share one with 10 mates um and i'm like i i love how i love influence you know i love the power of influence and how you can have one or two beliefs up here that completely shape a society or a culture I think that's just incredible. I also love how powerful that is to create change. Um, but in Australia and the clients that I work with, with I think tall poppy certainly one and that having more, I work with business owners that want to work less and, and continue to grow. Um, 
you know, that having more is a bit greedy, having more is a bit, bit of a show off, um, you know, kind of can draw out more of those narcissistic shadows. Um, so there's some common, some common ones that, uh, that I've worked with in my time, certainly in, in the last 12 months more so. Mm. When we're looking at tall poppy syndrome, what, what do you think creates that? Man, I think it's just this, uh, I think it would have just started with people not wanting to, to, to have to step up. You know, if, you know, if we're rocking out and I'm at a comfortable level and you're like, all right, bro, I'm going to take my business to this level. And, you know, we've got this great friendship and I'm like, oh, God, if I want to stay level, I need to keep up. But that scares the hell out of me. I'd be like, oh, man, don't be fucking too big for your britches. You know, have you thought about this? Have you worried about that? And I'm just dumping all my projections onto you. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's just it's that kind of that kind of stuff. You know, you've got someone close to you and you want to stay in their life and you want them in your life and they're like, well, I'm going in this direction. I'd love for you to come with me, but they don't want to go. They just want to keep you like on some level they want to keep you down, but really they're just wanting to keep you safe. You know, there's, there's innocence in it for sure. Um, there's innocence of just like, I'm scared shitless. I don't feel confident in myself to get there. I don't feel worthy of even being there. And it's scaring the hell out of me that you're talking about going there. Let's just slow it down a bit. You know, they want to feel safe. There's innocence in it, but it can cause a lot of friction in relationships. Um, so I think that's a big contributor. Uh, to tall poppy is you know we don't want we don't want to have to be challenged to grow to become more to step up Um, and if everyone around us just stays at that same level then we don't have to change we don't have to grow we can just stay safe Mm. yeah definitely i see that a lot as well like the it's easier to knock down the biggest building than build it so most people instantly instantly want to have the biggest building in town, but they're more than happy just to knock the biggest building down so that theirs looks so much bigger. So it just yeah. creates this entire, this entire ecosystem of consistently seeing people want to stand out and want to be ambitious and want to have that experience of just being more. And then everyone around them is just like, that highlights their insecurities at the same time. So it means, yeah. that, all right, well, if they're going to do that, then what does that mean about me? Does that mean that I'm failing? Does that mean I'm not good enough? Does, does that mean that I'm undeserving? Does that mean I'm not worthy? All of these things come up for that person. So the only defense mechanism they start to see is, well, I'll just knock that person down. So it's it's very interesting to see that dynamic play out. And as you said, it's it's rife in Australia, but very rare, like in a lot of other places around the world. Like it's it's just not there in America. Here it's completely different based on the – the cultural experiences that we have and the dogma that we go through as well. So it's very interesting. Totally. Yeah. So very you, interesting. You mentioned before about working with people and kind of working through their, their wanting more or their greed around getting, getting more money and doing less work. Can you go into that in a little bit more detail and is greed a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Is it neutral? What, what's your perspective on that? Yeah, for sure. So, like, I think we do, uh, especially, I think in most of the world, you know, like you can kind of grow up and become conditioned in a world of, of hard work. 
I'm certainly not against doing the work. Nothing happens without it. You know, you've got to take action to produce results. I just like to create a distinction between doing the work and hard work because if someone's not working hard, all of a sudden they feel like a piece of shit. They don't feel worthy. They don't feel deserving. Energetically, they're closed off to more results uh, unless they work harder. You know, working with stress and anxiety, some, some people, they don't, if they don't come home stressed, they don't feel like they've been productive. Mm. I mustn't have done enough today because I don't feel like shit at the end of my day. <sighs> Fuck that, man. Excuse my language, but that's, that's, no, that's no way to be, to be living. So I think uh, in terms of this in greed and having more and working less, it just challenges identities again. You know, if there's an identity of being a battler, of being a hard worker, then uh, all of a sudden you're working less hours and making more money. Like that identity's got to die. It has to die. It got you to where you are, but what got you here won't get you there. You know, it, it has to die at that point if you want to scale and if you want to grow with more ease and more flow and work less hours and make more money. You know, the deepest level of truth that the universe is responding to and reflecting back to us with results is our beliefs about who we are. And if your consistent belief of your identity and who you are as a, a battler and a hard worker, sure, you'll be able to produce results. It's just going to take a lot of time, energy and effort from you to produce them and to sustain them. And this is why people end up burning out. So to, to change that is to, is to change the identity. Um, and then, you know, like greed, I've, I mean, for so much of my life, I've rocked this of like, I don't, I don't need more. You know, I got enough. And this kind of, this kind of humility, yeah. this humility of, you know, it's not about having more. It's, you know, I'm so spiritual, blah, blah, blah. You know, um, that kind of crap is that, yeah, it's just this, this humility of, oh man, you're just getting by with not a lot. Man, you must be a really good person or something. Or, or you have a lot. Mm. It must be selfish or an asshole or conniving or manipulative or greedy or, or, or whatever it is. Um, so I think there's just resistances to those types of things that it's, there's just, I believe there's a lot of negative judgment associated with being successful. You know, that it's, well, if you're a successful person, I remember putting back 2016 and I was at the barbers and, um, I was linking up with a new business partner who was successful. A year younger than me, had uh, done a million dollars in his first year, blah, blah, blah. And I was telling my barber. And he just said something like, oh, must be pretty ruthless, um, you know, to be able to be in that position. And I'm like, well, not necessarily, but that's a, it's an interesting belief. It's an interesting view on the world that to have that level of success, you must be ruthless. And if someone doesn't want to be seen as ruthless, but they want to be successful and that's their blueprint, that's their mindset, they're just going to keep sabotaging as bad as they want success, they, but they don't want to be seen as ruthless even more, then they'll just stay where they are and justify it. Oh, no, I don't need much. Um, so I, th I certainly think those types of things come into play. Mm. So, so when we think about that then, like, it comes back to the meaning that people ultimately make out of it in that instance and the connection between what success actually means to them and what it would actually take to get that. How do we, how do we start to shift that to be able to create the things that we truly want rather than settling for what we have? 
and being that humble person. Yeah, totally. The way to do it is to understand that there's, from a human behavioral perspective in life, there's safe problems and there's risky problems. Mm. Uh, A safe problem is to be struggling in your business. A risky problem is to feel how unworthy you feel of having a successful business. I like to create the distinction between pain and suffering. Pain is inevitable in life. Suffering is a choice. Suffering is created through our resistance of pain and having to feel. Because suffering is a choice, there's elements of security. Back to this this need of certainty and the ego's addiction to it. Because suffering is a choice, there's elements of security, safety, comfort, control, familiarity. It's like I'm struggling in my business, but I've been struggling for five years. I know how to struggle. I've been suffering with anxiety for 10 years, but I know how to suffer with anxiety. You know, I, I, even though we're not consciously aware that we're putting ourselves through it, on a deeper level, there's the knowing of that. Mm. So there's that just familiarity in being in it. Um, <clears throat> to turn and feel and to, and to just allow pain to truly be felt with the classic, you've got to feel it to heal it, and the only way out of pain is through pain. If you try to go around pain, you'll live a life of suffering. Is um, You've got to surrender. To surrender is to stop fighting. To surrender is to let go of control. And we've never been taught how to feel, truly feel. A lot of people are feeling a lot in their suffering, but they're not truly feeling the hurt and the pain because it's deep, it's dark. Who knows how long it's going to go for? It can be overwhelming. You just need to let it wash over you and submit. And because we've never been taught how to do this, that's a terrifying experience. So suffering is deemed to be the better option, the safer more familiar, more comfortable options. So the way to do that is to turn and face and feel the feeling because every strategy that we've created in our life, every pattern that we've created that isn't working for us in the way that we say that we want, that isn't sustainably moving us towards our goals is to avoid a feeling. So you've got the feeling over here. You've got this whole strategy of success means you're ruthless, not I don't need that, I'm humble, blah, blah, blah. As soon as you turn and face and feel this feeling, you no longer need the strategy and the strategy can go as well. And then you just, you just like change, uh, behaviors change, patterns change, new results come into your reality. All of a sudden you've got things that you've been procrastinating for a month, you've got, you've got them all done in a day. And you're like, wow, I can't believe the shit I used to tell myself and feed myself. I believed that. I believed that I was tired. I believed that these things were more important. You're like, no, I was just avoiding feeling how unworthy I felt. And the closer that I get towards my goal, the more that feeling of unworth stirs up. And that's when we sabotage. That's when we back off. That's when we get lazy. Um, So the... I think at the deepest level of the, you know, there's a lot of little intricacies and complexity, uh, complexities, the deepest level is to turn and face and feel the feeling that we've been avoiding. Mm. And what is required to be able to do that? Surrender. Mm. Understanding that the feeling isn't permanent. The nature of the universe is impermanence, which means change. That as overwhelming as it may feel, it can't hurt you. It can't harm you. It may feel very uncomfortable, but it's, it's like emotion is energy in motion. You know, it's like you're on a one way street 
and you're going the wrong way. And these cars are like, we don't mean you any harm. We don't have an issue with you. We just want to drive out the street. And you're like, nah, nah, go back, go back, go back. It's like a tennis ball floating underwater with our hand over the top of it. It just wants to float to the top of the surface and drift on down the stream, but we're not letting it. We're trying to push it away and get rid of it. Whereas really, we just need to get out of the way and allow it to do its thing. So even just that understanding, next time someone's feeling anxious or they've got the tension in their, the, in their chest, the swelling in the gut, the tightness in their throat, is to bring the awareness to the natural resistance, get out of the way and just allow the feeling to be there. It's going to do its own thing. It's, it's, I like to look at things as if love and life is just coming up. Thoughts, emotions, old stories, old identities, they're always just coming up and they want to leave the body. But then the ego and uh, fear is coming down, trying to suppress, trying to control, trying to remove. But it's in direct opposition to life. It's getting in the way. It has intentions to get rid of the things, but in doing so, it plants them firmly in place, which is just such a beautiful simplicity and ironic thing. I was about to say ironical, but that's not a word. Uh, An ironic thing about life is that we're just uh, getting in the fucking way pretty much. Mm. So how do we, how do we start to create this capacity to feel? Because we're living in a society where there are certain phrases like boys aren't meant to cry. You're not allowed to show emotion. If you're vulnerable on social media, you're weird, all of these things. How do we start that process to actually being with the feelings that we actually, that are actually coming up for us and actually, allowing those to be felt so that we can actually create that healing. How do we stop that process? Yeah. So the big answer and the start is a willingness to do so. Mm. Plain and simple, a willingness to do so. You know, if I, if I talk about wanting six pack abs, but I'm not willing to do what's required to get the result, then I'm just talking. That's it. If I talk about change, but I'm not willing to feel the shit to be in the trenches, I'm just talking. So it all starts with a willingness, plain and simple, a willingness to challenge, a willingness to face, a willingness to feel, um, you know, because I have to think about what I've just shared in terms of that t- technique, that mechanism of surrender. Someone could understand it logically, but if they're not yet willing to feel, they're just not going to apply it. And then they might say, oh, it's the technique that doesn't work. It works. Um, so there, it's a willingness then you'll start challenging stuff. Mm. And what happens when people start to use that as a strategy? Like I'm letting go, I'm letting go. And they're like looking for the, the result, but they're ultimately just using that as a strategy, which then allows it to continually play out. What happens then? They just stay stuck, bro, because they're still, they're, they're just controlling. Like if we go back to attachment, they're attached to the result. They're a, uh, so, and because they're attached to a result and in their mind it has to happen, then there's, it, it cuts off allowing, it cuts off surrender because, you know, you can't make the emotion shift, but you can get out of the way and allow it to shift on its own accord. But if it's, okay, so I let go to get this result and we're attached to the result, then you're fearful of the result not happening, you get in the way, you try, you control, you stay stuck. Mm, definitely. I think it's that awareness. Uh, between forcing it and allowing it. So most people are trying to use this strategy to force it to be able to get it out of the way rather than just allowing it to actually just come up and have that full expression 
and yes. just be with it. So. Totally. And it's, it's like, so it's not the, and this is why people run, jump from program to program, strategy to strategy, technique to technique. You know, it's like, if you can't hit a nail into the wood, it's not the fucking hammer's fault. You don't need to go out and buy a new hammer and then you've got 15 hammers and you still can't get it in there. It's the application of it, you know, like this happens a lot with understandings of many things in spiritual truth where the, the ineffective or the misunderstanding of what something is leads to a mis, uh, uh, ineffective, sorry, ineffective application, which just leads to more suffering. It's not that, yeah, it's, it's totally that you need to understand and apply things in the, in the correct way to, to, to get the result. Mm, cool. When we think about like going into our feelings, going into the dark places or going into the shadow work, like what, what, why would we do that? Number of reasons, man, why people would want to want to get into that. It could be, could be weight loss, could be attracting a partner, could be making more money, could be freedom from the suffering that they're experiencing. Um, could be finding a job, could be getting healthy you know, we, we all have our reasons. We all have our purpose. We all have our why, which is incredibly valuable or else we just wouldn't be doing the work. Um, sometimes it comes to a point of pain that it's like, this is no longer bearable. Um, but yeah, I'd say there's a number of different reasons, certainly some consistencies across the board, but then each individual's unique reason or why. Mm. Yeah, cool. And then when we look at the, the, the concept of looking at doing shadow work, like how would you define what shadow work is for you and your clients? Yeah, totally. So whether I define shadow work, it is the parts of ourself that we hate, that we judge, that we blame, that we feel shame around that we fear the world would treat in the way in which we already treat it. And that we shut off and hide to the shadows. Yeah. You know, it's like, there's so much shame and hate around this part. It's like that if I, if this part of me gets seen by the world, I'm dead. I'm gone. No one can love this part because it sucks so much, you know? So we fear that the world will treat us in the way in which we're already treating ourselves. And we fear the world will treat us in that way because that's the way in which we're already treating ourselves. So yeah, these are the parts of ourselves that we put into the shadows and the shadows come about based on our expectations. If I expect myself to be like, whatever, I don't care. Well, let's say just, you know, we've both grown, we're men. So we've grown up being boys and received all that conditioning. The men that I work with and internal judgments for myself, the most common ones are weak, pussy, little bitch. You don't want to be fucking, you're not allowed to be scared as a little boy. So, you know, you're not, you're not allowed to not step up. You're not allowed to be afraid. And if you are, you know, because they're the expectations to be strong, to step up, to push through and to be fearless, anything other than that gets judged in a negative manner and is cast in the shadows. Weak, pussy, little bitch. Um, whereas, let's flip it. And, and huge generalizations here, so whoever's listening, don't get caught up. Uh, let's flip and say that for, for women, they've grown up learning that got to be softer, got to, to be more caring, got to be more compassionate and all these types of things. So these are expectations now. So if we flip it, they might have, the, you know, more masculine sides of them, more narcissistic sides of them that are, that's go and that wants to achieve some stuff in the world. 
and they create shadows that it's like you're hard, you're cold, you're this, you're this heartless bitch. And it's just like, you know, there's no truth to that, but the shadow gets created based on what the initial expectation is. Um, and then because we expect ourselves to be one way and we judge the parts that aren't that way, these then get cast into the shadow. So, yeah, that's my understanding of shadow work in just a broad type sense. Mm. So when we look at that, it's ultimately uh, just a mechanism of how we're starting to create that that internal war with ourselves with the different parts that we don't want to ultimately be seen and the things that we we fear being seen in that instance. Is that right? Yeah. yeah, totally, bro. There's nothing wrong with these parts, but we say that there is, mm. and then that's why we hide them away. Which is, which again, uh, I want to highlight how everything's self-created, man. We're just running from our own judgments. We're running from our own meanings. We are trapped in an experience of our own judgments, meanings, and perceptions. Um, so yeah, when those when we judge those parts that feel a bit softer as weak or pussy or gay or whatever it is, it's just a part of us that's a bit softer and that's that's really beautiful. But yeah, because the expectation is to be harder and to be a fucking man, it just gets judged in a negative manner. Mm. And how do we start to lean into more of that work? The pretty much everything that we've we've covered in this um, in this today, man. Like starting with the awareness, taking the responsibility, exploring the the pay uh, the 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 benefits and the secondary gains and the payoffs, having the willingness, turning and facing, doing the feeling. Um, I've enjoyed the questions today because we've actually really got into the actual how-to steps of transformation, which I think is pretty void uh, in the marketplace a fair bit. You know, a lot of it's just like, go out there and live your best life. It's like, yeah, that's great and all, but how the fuck do you do that? <laughs> you know? it's like, just let go of it. It's like, I get that, but how do you actually <laughs> do that? So I've enjoyed the questions today, man, because they've literally just dug into the how-to of transformation. Um, so to answer that final question, it's it's more so, yeah, the, just the broader sense. Have the awareness, take the responsibility, question the why, um, bring the willingness, turn and face and feel. That's how we dive into into the work. Perfect. That's a perfect summary of like everything we've talked about today. So that was amazing. Yeah, that's, that's wrapped itself up pretty uh, pretty nicely, I reckon. Yeah. Cool. Thanks for taking the time out of your day to be able to share your wisdom with the listeners. Where's the best place that people can get in contact with you? So people can get in contact with me. I'm on uh, Insta, Facebook, uh, email, LinkedIn. Um, the social links will be somewhere, but floating around on my business and my personal page is probably the best place to get in touch. And of course, via email as well. Yeah. Perfect. Awesome. Thanks again for your time. Really appreciate it. Thanks, man. It's been great to, to be on board and have a conversation. I've thoroughly enjoyed myself. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode of the Cody and Paul podcast. Stay tuned for our next episode. And in the meantime, be sure to check out our private Facebook group, The Human Potential Movement. Just search that on Facebook and you'll be able to find us and join that group to join the conversation around all of these episodes and learn even more about how to unleash your own latent superhuman potential. See you on the next episode, guys, and thanks for listening.